0: Right on, you got your Bible? Turn with me to uh, John chapter 8. <clears throat> John chapter 8. And actually, would you stand with me? Let's stand together. Let's, let's read this text uh, this morning. It's a great text. Actually, pick it up in chapter 7, verse 53. It says this, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, of Mo- now in the law Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word this morning. And Jesus, uh, it's our desire to meet with you. I just think about sitting at your feet this morning as we consider your word and consider what John tells us in his gospel. And Lord, we wanna hear what your spirit says to the church. We wanna hear what you're saying to us, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would just give us a spirit, Lord, of wisdom and revelation this morning that we, kn- we might know you better, that we might comprehend who you are, more, Jesus, that we might get into the heart of this story and have you touch our hearts and change us, Lord. And so, uh, Jesus, reveal yourself to us, we pray. Transform us, we pray. In your name. Amen. Right on. You may be seated. Cool story, eh? This is a great story. I mean, you got to... You got to love this story, and it's interesting because you read it. I don't know if you saw it at the top of the page. I'm sure you did. You've seen it if you've read the Gospel of John at some point in time. That this story is actually put with square brackets around it. Uh, From from chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse uh, 11 there. There's square brackets, and, and most Bibles have this little clause written in there that says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7 verse 53 to chapter 8 verse 11. And so kind of the question is when you come to this text I mean it's interesting how that sets you up for reading it. It's like the first thing that you you ask yourself is is this, this legit? Like should this should this be in the scripture or or is it part of the scripture? And so it's interesting that that notes in here. Now, it's true. Like, let me tell you a little bit about this story. It's true that this account is not always found in the ancient manuscripts. And in fact, some of the manuscripts that it is found in, it's not placed in this part of John's gospel. It's set at the end. And, uh, and so many scholars, when they read this and when they study this passage, they agree that this is an inspired piece of scripture no matter where you set it. But some manuscripts don't have it. And, and many believing, many believe this. And I would say just including myself. That this is actually right where it's supposed to be. I didn't just happen to believe in God's ability to like look after his word. Like if he can't maintain a book for a couple thousand years. He's not worthy of my praise and worship. I just have to say that. Like honestly. And so I think it's landed right exactly where it's supposed to be. Where the spirit of God would have it. You read the story and it's like awesome. Like this is only, this is a Jesus story. A human being couldn't invent a story like this. Like there's too many crazy things going on. It fits perfectly with the character of Jesus. It fits perfectly with the character of the Pharisees. It has all the marks of being genuine. And, and it's been suggested that, that the reason why it was left out of some of the manuscripts was this. Is, is that people have fears about this text. Because it's like messy. It's like, oh, well, this can't be in the gospel. Like, look at this story about Jesus and a woman caught in adultery. And maybe people are going to read this and they're going to come to some sort of superficial conclusion that that Jesus says adultery is okay. And so we better like sanitize the scripture. We better clean it up because the Holy Spirit can't manage to do that in hearts and lives. And so we'll we'll just edit that out because it's uncomfortable for us. And it's, it's interesting how, you know, human beings could do something like that, handle the scripture and the word of God that way. We, we know this. We're going to see this. Jesus is not condoning immorality here. He's not condoning adultery here. Uh, but it, it's crazy how we can say, well, you know, I think God needs me to sanitize who he is. Sanitize his word. Just take the edge off a little bit. You know, this is uncomfortable. This part of the gospel story is a little bit uncomfortable. And and so, you know, what a bad decision the spirit of God made to put it in there. I'll just take it out. I'll edit it out. It's crazy when you think of it. And I really think that that's what's happened. And so, you know, why is this in the scripture? Now, today, we're reading it because it's true. That's why. Because God wants us to go through this story. And this story is beautiful because this story tells us that The primary concern of Jesus is not to punish someone who's doing wrong. The primary concern of Jesus is to correct them, to lead them to repentance. The scripture tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's not that Jesus wants the sinner, the wrongdoer to get off scot-free, but he wants to put them right. He wants to bring them into correct relationship with the father turning from sin and turning to faith in Christ Jesus. And, and Jesus' primary concern is always that for you and I. It's like, you know, we, get, we get this idea that it's like he always wants to come down on the wrongdoer, but that's, I mean, he does, believe me, he does. But first and foremost, he wants to bring people back into right relationship with himself and with his father. And, and Jesus is just that perfect blend of justice And and mercy at the same time. And so this story shows his wisdom. It's amazing really. And how he escapes this trap that's set for him. Like this is a trap that's set. There's no doubt about it. And if you like really stop and think about this. This is a perfect trap. It's perfect. Like it's totally brilliant. Like on a human level. There is no way to escape the trap that these men have set for Jesus. And it's sinister. Like I read this. It's like sinister. There's no there's no sincerity in their plan and their hearts towards Jesus. This isn't about righteousness. This isn't about morality in Jerusalem and morality in marriage. It has nothing to do with that. This is... It's not about justice in God's law. This was about trapping Jesus because these men wanted to kill him. We've already seen this. Lots in this gospel. They wanted to kill him. And this is a good trap. You know, a number of years ago, we, were, uh, we went camping. And actually, Amy and Ben were getting ready to go on the mission field and we were just trying to sneak all the time we could together and so we planned a camping trip and we went to Monk Park just outside of Merritt. What's that lake called there by the way? I forget. Nicola Lake. We were on Nicola Lake and uh, I'd camped there when I was a kid with my grandparents. We'd had family kind of camp outs there and remember feeding the squirrels and all that kind of stuff and so we're setting up camp and Amy's boys are little and just Helena's there. Charlotte's not born and my boys are just slightly older. Everybody's young and Ben and I are trying to get tents set up, and it's hot out. I mean, we had we, we ended up in one of these campsites where there wasn't a tree anywhere, so it was just all sun beating down on us. And so to get the boys busy right away, I said, hey, why don't you guys go trap some squirrels because these little ground squirrels were everywhere. And so, you know, it was like perfect. We were there for like a week, and Jonah and Eli and Luke and Simon spent the whole time just trying to trap squirrels. And it was brilliant. And, and they had no success whatsoever. <laughs> but Ben and I would feed him stuff. Well, here, try this rope, you know. We'll try this box. We do this thing. So we camp, and we have a great time. And on the last day, we're like packing up the tents. And all of a sudden, Jonah's like, I got one, I got one, I got one. And I'm like, no way, Ben and I look at each other. And we go cruising over there. He's like, I got it. I, I threw a rock, and I hit it. <laughs> and, and so... We go over, and, and poor Jonah, I'm telling this story on him. You know, I shouldn't do this. But here's a squirrel, and he's laying on the ground. And he's like, I got him, Dad. I got him. And I said, oh, bud, I don't think that squirrel's doing very well. <laughs> In fact, you did. You, you tagged him. I think he's a goner. We're not going to celebrate his capture. we got to have a funeral here. <laughs> and, uh, and so we're standing over this squirrel. You can, you can imagine these boys. Jonah's probably... Nine, I guess, and everybody else is younger, and we're looking at him. And Luke says, "Well, way to go, Jonah. <laughs> we just wanted to catch one, not kill it. <laughs> Trapping squirrels, and we had great fun. So we had a little funeral. Now this trap is perfect. This one we read about here. This is the perfect trap. This was the goal of the Pharisees. They were going to kill him. This." Trap had all the, pla- all, all the appearances of being totally fail-proof. When they came up with this, they were like rubbing their hands together, licking their chops, and high-fiving one another because they had him. You need to know that. Slam dunk. Now let me remind you of the context here. Let's back out and just remember where we've been in, in the Gospel of John because this was regarding surrounding the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was also called the Festival of Lights. And and I've been telling you this over the last couple weeks, that this was like a Thanksgiving family campout. That a million people had made the journey to Jerusalem as one of the high festivals, one of the high feasts. Around the city, they had built makeshift campsites, little booths, little tents that they were living in. They were camping out, and... They were doing this because they were recalling God leading them out of slavery in Egypt uh, to the promised land and the journey that was made to the promised land and the 40 years that they had lived in the desert, that their ancestors had lived in the desert, they had lived in tents, and God had sustained them in the midst of it. He had had provided bread from heaven for 40 years. He had provided water from the rock when they needed it. He had uh, sheltered them with a pillar of cloud by day. He had kept them warm at night with a pillar of fire. When that pillar of cloud or pillar of fire picked up and moved, they packed up camp and they followed the presence of God. God had led them. He had directed them. He had looked after them for 40 years. He had sustained them in the wilderness until that generation had passed and he could lead a new generation into the promised land of Israel and out of tents and into permanent homes. And so the feast of booze, was this week-long celebration that they recounted the faithfulness of God. And yet we read this, and John chapter 7 tells us this, on, on the last and greatest day, on the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood up in the temple courts, and John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 says that Jesus proclaimed this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, just as the Lord provided for you in the wilderness, just as the Lord sustained you in that dry land and water was provided from the rock, so too if you come to me, if you believe in me, then just like water was provided for their, their physical bodies, your ancestors' physical bodies, so I'll provide water for your soul. I will nourish and wet your soul. I will quench your thirst if you come to me. And Jesus said this. John, John explains to us in the seventh chapter that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit. He was saying, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he will be an abundant source of life inside of you that will quench the thirst of your soul. And we need that, right? Like we need that. We need God to quench our thirsty spirits. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. That's part of why we gather on a Sunday to worship together, to meet with God so that the Spirit of God can refresh us. It's part of why we have daily quiet times where we want to meet God every day and spend time with him by ourselves as individuals in the word and say, Jesus, I need you. You got to quench my thirst today. I, I need water for today. We need the filling and the empower of the Holy Spirit because without him, we're dry, we're barren. Our our lives are like a wilderness. We're thirsty. It's a waterless existence. Our lives are spiritually fruitless without the Holy Spirit. We're fruitless. Like, Like a desert. That's what our lives are like without the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, you come to me and you believe in me and out of your life will flow streams of living water rivers of living water abundant the abundant work of the holy spirit and so jesus had proclaimed this on the last and greatest day of the feast and it followed this confrontation that we with this confrontation with the religious leaders and this is where we pick up the story in john chapter 7 verse 53 and again it says this they went each to his own house but jesus went to the mount of olives so following the feast, everybody packs up and returns to their home, but not Jesus. Jesus didn't have a home, right? Like he didn't, he didn't have a home, so he went where? He went to the Mount of Olives. And on the slope of the Mount of Olives, I think Jesus went to a place where he visited often. Because there's this garden there that's at the slope of the Mount of Olives. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus would often go to that place and he would go to that place to be refreshed. He would go there to meet with his father to spend time in prayer, to commune with his heavenly father. And he went there so often that six months after this, when Judas, on the night he was being betrayed, when Judas was saying, I know where he is, Judas led the temple soldiers to this garden. So here's Jesus on this night, six months before he's betrayed, and he goes to the same place, doesn't have a home to go to. And I just imagine he was there that night praying. I mean, John doesn't tell us, but he was being refreshed by the presence of his father as he rested under those olive trees and seeking the Lord. Chapter 8 tells us that early in the morning he came to the temple, and all the people came to to him, and he sat down. So I, I think this is morning following the conclusion of the feast, Feast of Tabernacles. Many people are probably packing up and leaving the city, packing up their little tents. They're heading out, heading back to their hometowns, their home villages, but Jesus does this. Jesus returns to the temple, and I like this because he's he's there, he's ready. He's ready to meet with anyone who's ready to meet with him. Anyone that might come looking for him, they're going to find him. Anybody that might be seeking him, he makes sure he's available because that's what Jesus does. I don't know if you know this about Jesus, but he's always ready to meet with those who'll seek him. He's always ready for that. When you seek him, know this. He is always ready to meet with you. He's in the right spot. He's ready. He's ready to rock. He's waiting. Talk about licking your chops and rubbing your hands. That's Jesus. Sweet. You're coming into my presence. Let's go. Let's meet. And so it tells us here that the crowds came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. Now, it was, was, like I said, the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles, and it was a real festival in every sense of the word. You know, people, it was late nights, it was hanging out. I'm sure just because, you know, they serve God, the, the wine probably flowed a little bit too much. This went on, that went on, and people are getting back to their tents late at night, and everything was not always above board. I mean, come on, there's people here. And on the last night, they found one man's wife in the tent with another man. In another tent with another man. And I have the feeling that this was really premeditated. I mean, you read this, and you you know that the Pharisees, like, like they had all the watchdogs out, man. This was set. This was a set plan, totally premeditated. And they knew this, that not everything was always above board amongst the people. And so we can just be on the watch and we'll catch somebody and then we can set Jesus up in the perfect, perfect, perfect trap. And so verse 3, I want to read this again. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him... Who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with her, sta- alone with the woman standing before him. And this is a dark story. When you read this, this like shows the darkness of a human heart that they would like manipulate, that they would plan, that they would contrive this whole thing, that it would all be set up as a trap. And it's crazy when you read about these men, the first thing we see is that they, they bring the woman, but who don't they bring? The man. Like what the heck? The law required... Mosaic law required that both be punished. It was equal punishment. It wasn't just the woman who was to be stoned to death. And we know what that means, right? I should probably just adjust that culturally, the context. That means you're not smoking something, you're picking up rocks, and you're killing someone. They were both deserving of death according to Mosaic law. Both required to be punished. So this just shows... The hard attitude of these men who had brought this woman before Jesus, they weren't interested in cleaning up immorality in the city of Jerusalem. They were not interested in morality whatsoever. They were using this woman for their own purposes which is an interesting way to say like there is nothing pure about their intentions whatsoever. This was bait in the trap and And I just think, you know, their their actions were as bad as anything she had been found doing. I'd say their hearts were probably worse. But they were so callous, they didn't even realize it. Now, why was this a trap for Jesus? Like, if you stop and think about this, well, it's like, okay, if he says, okay, she has to be stoned, she has to die for what she's done, well, Jesus was known as the friend of sinners. I mean, like, people were coming to him like crazy. And and if Jesus gave this instruction all of a sudden man it would ripple through everywhere. It would be like no no Jesus is not safe to come to. He's not the friend of sinners. How, How can you approach him? Look what happened here. What if he finds out about me? What if he finds out about what's in this heart? What if he finds out about the actions that I've participated in? He can't be safely approached. And so this idea of Jesus being the friend of sinners, well, it's going to wreck his relationship with people who need him. If he did condemn her, then, sorry, if, if he didn't condemn her, then, then he would be condoning sin. He'd be saying, well, you know, what, what she's done really doesn't matter. He'd be undermining the law of God. He'd be breaking, breaking the law. And so they had him on that side. So it's like if, if, if he condemns her, he loses If he condones what she did, he loses. It's like lose, lose. Now I just happen to think, the more I thought about this, I just happen to think that adultery was going on all throughout the festival. Like, and the law of Moses was widely and openly being disregarded by lots of people in those days. And so what happens if Jesus takes this like hard line? What happened if he said the law of Moses didn't apply? And they'd they'd brand him as one who didn't hold to the law of God. Or what about the Romans? Let's add a whole other puzzle piece into the puzzle. What about the Romans? The Romans, who were governing the province, had, had outlawed Jews from practicing capital punishment. So it's like potential for trouble with the lost, it's potential for trouble with the legalist, it's potential for trouble with the Romans. This is lose, lose, lose. They had him in every way. There wasn't a single answer when you think about it that Jesus could give when they say, well, what do you say? What do you say? And it's here that we read this amazing thing that Jesus stooped down on the ground. Isn't this a cool picture? Like just in your mind's eye, catch this. He stooped down on the ground and he began to write with his finger, which is weird. It's like, this is a strange action from Jesus. What's, what's going on here? Writing on the ground with his finger in the dust. In the dust of the earth. You think about it. Well, you know what they say? They say that this is the only time Jesus ever wrote anything. He stooped down, and he began to write, and it's the only thing that he ever wrote. So the question is, well, what did he write? <laughs> right, guess all they thinking. You go, wow, I wonder what he wrote. What would he been, Was he drawing pictures? Was he writing words? What, what did he do when he stooped down on the ground? And, and you think about writing on the ground and the only thing that he ever wrote in the dust of the earth, a little bit of wind or some feet trampling across it and it's gone. Never for anybody to see ever again or to know what it was, it would be erased. After being written in the earth, it would be erased. It, it'd be rubbed out. And the only thing that Jesus ever wrote would be lost forever, which is interesting. So we don't know what he wrote. We we don't know. So why does John record that he did this? Why does John record that Jesus, why does it even matter that he stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger? I think there's a couple beautiful pictures here from the Old Testament. So I want to remind you of a couple. See, back in the Old Testament, during the exodus that had just been celebrated, all that wilderness wandering and the times of meeting with God, during the exodus, Moses had gone up a mountain. Exodus chapter 31 tells us that God had used his finger and with his finger he had inscribed, not in the dust of the earth, he had had inscribed something on stone tablets, 10 commandments. He had given them to Moses and they were to be taught to the people. Now, here's Jesus with the finger, and he's writing, not in stone tablets, he's writing in the dust of the earth. If you were to flip to Daniel chapter 5, you don't have to go there. I'm going to tell you what happened in Daniel chapter 5, but I would encourage you to go home and read Daniel chapter 5 today, okay? Do this. Daniel chapter 5 tells us about a time when the Babylonian king, King Belshazzar, was hosting a banquet in his royal palace, and they were partying hard. It was like a festival, like what had just happened in Jerusalem. And they were drinking and he was blitzed and his guests were blitzed. And he gave this instruction. He said, go and get some of those beautiful silver and gold goblets that we've pulled out of the temple that my father pulled out of the temple in Jerusalem and let's let's party some more. And the scripture says that he handed out these goblets. Daniel tells us this and the wine was being poured and he cursed God and he worshiped the gods of gold and silver And in his drunken state, he he blasphemed the Lord. He misused these objects that had come from the temple. Now imagine this, picture this. Jesus is sitting in the temple while he's writing in the dust of the earth. He's in the temple grounds. Belshazzar, all these centuries earlier, was misusing these articles from the temple. The very things that had once been used in the presence of God. And he drank from them, he cursed the Lord, he laughed at the people of God, he blasphemed against them the Lord and Daniel chapter 5 tells us that suddenly before him and a guest a hand appeared. And the hand, the finger of the hand began to inscribe something on the wall of the Babylonian palace. This is an incredible story. That's why you got to go home and read it this afternoon. And, And the scripture tells us that his heart basically dropped to the floor when he saw This hand writing on the wall. And so they couldn't get anybody to interpret what was written on the wall. So finally his mother said oh there's this guy Daniel. This old guy who served your father. So they get Daniel and Daniel comes and Daniel interprets what's been written on the wall. And Daniel says the message is this from God to you King Belshazzar. Here's the message you have been weighed in the balances and you have been found wanting. In fact, Daniel said this, God has numbered your days, Belshazzar. You have been weighed in the balances and you have fallen short. You have been found wanting. And your kingdom's about to be brought to an end. And history tells us And this is in the book of Daniel that that very night the Medo-Persians came under the wall. They diverted the river that was coming into the city of Babylon and they came under the wall of the city and they killed Belshazzar that very night and Daniel was raised to power in the new kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom. God had judged the Babylonian king that very night when he was attacked and defeated. Now I just wonder this. Let me just throw something out for fun. The words that Daniel interpreted that were written on the wall were these words, mene, mene, tekel, parason." Your days are numbered, you've been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. I wonder if Jesus wrote those same four words on the ground. Mene, mene, tekel, parison. The same words that had been written on the wall of the Babylonian palace. I think Jesus this day gave a judgment. God's numbered your days. Your kingdom has been found wanting. He's sitting in the temple. Your kingdom has been found wanting and it's gonna be brought to an end. You've been weighed in the balances. As Jesus stooped and he rode on the ground. The scripture tells us the Pharisees continued to press him. It's not like they asked this question once. Look at verse 7. He's down on the ground already. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And then verse 8, check out verse 8. And once more, he bent down and he rode on the ground. So he goes down a second time and he begins to write again some more. Jesus gave them an answer and once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. So a second time Jesus begins to write something and I think Jeremiah prophesied about what Jesus wrote. So I want you to turn in your Bible to so Jeremiah chapter 17. And you need to go there in your Bible. You need to mark this in your Bible. If you've got a pen, I want you to mark it this morning. And if you don't have a Bible on you, it's going to come up on the screen because this is so powerful. You have to see this. You have to see the prophecy of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. I'll give you a second to get there. Are you there? Who's there? Are you there? Okay, good. Okay, 17, verse 13. Let's read this. It says this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the fountain of living water. Is that not incredible? Let's read that again. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. These Pharisees had put themselves in the places of judge and they were being judged by Jesus. And two things I would point out to you, I think the Holy Spirit would point out to you from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Number one, it says this, those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Can you say, let's everybody say, written in the earth. Written in the earth. To be written in the earth. I got to think about that. To be written in the earth to me is to not have eternal life. This world is temporary. And to be written into the dust of this earth. Means to say that you don't belong to eternity. That you don't belong to Jesus. And so I don't know what Jesus wrote, but maybe he began to write the names of those who were before him who were written in the earth. Maybe, I don't know, maybe he began to write what sins, I don't, I don't know what he, what he wrote. But I think this is an incredible picture. And the second thing I think is important from Jeremiah chapter 17, that it, it says this, that they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Everybody say this, the fountain of living water. The fountain, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The day before Jesus had taught them this, The day before he identified himself as the source of living water that he would give, that he was the one who would give the Holy Spirit. And Jeremiah prophesied that the names of those who forsook the Lord would be written in the earth soon to be erased. Only a matter of time. And the feet of those who, the wind would blow, the feet Feet of those who walked in that area would trample those names and and they would be erased. What was written in the earth would be erased. They'd rub it out and the only thing that Jesus ever wrote that we're told about in the gospels would be lost. Just like those who reject him. But the scripture tells us that yet to all who received him To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You know that if you receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, he also writes your name down. He also writes your name down. Where does he write your name if you receive him? In the Lamb's book of life. You know what? Never to be erased. Never to be erased to be erased. Where's your name written? Where's your name written? Is your name written in the earth? Or is it written in the book of life? And Jesus invites you, come. Come to me. Come to me. Believe in me. Let's put this right. You come to me, I'll put it right. I'll make it right. I'll redeem you. I'll restore you. I will rescue you. You can come to me and you can drink, and rivers of living water will come from your heart. Flow. Where's your name written? Jesus said to them, but let, let him who is without sin, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, the, the perfect trap was exactly that. I mean, it was perfect, but, but look, come on. Did you really think you can trap Jesus? You can't trap Jesus. You can't, you can't trap Jesus. And suddenly it's like the tables are turned with like one word out of his mouth. I just love this. And now, who's in a trap? Who's caught? Everyone else who hears the voice of Jesus is caught. It's like, no, actually, you're going to answer to me. And when Jesus said this, when he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I mean, we read this and we we always think this. We always think, well, that means you have to be perfect before you can throw a stone. That is not actually what Jesus is saying. So let me clarify that for you. He's not saying you need to be perfect to throw a stone at her. These guys understood what Jesus was saying. He was saying this to the men who were in front of him. To the men who were in front of him, he was saying this, Whichever of you who has not committed adultery, let him be the first to cast the stone at her. He's catching the Pharisees in their own game. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I don't know if you can suggest that every scribe and every Pharisee had committed adultery, Or were involved in some sort of immorality. But all I know is this Jesus said this in in Matthew chapter 5. He said that if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, you are guilty of the sin of adultery. And if these men that were before Jesus were not guilty by the letter of the law, I'm telling you, they were guilty by the spirit of the law and the true meaning of the law. Because Jesus' word, it cuts like a knife, it's a sword, it pierced their hearts. If they weren't guilty by the letter, they were guilty by the spirit of the law and every man there knew it. Their hearts were pierced by the statement of Jesus. And it was the older men who put the stones down first and began to walk. They began to walk away. See, the, the, the false righteousness, when you're older, you know the false righteousness of youth begins to disappear. You're like... Yeah, actually, I'm starting to understand who I am and I'm like a wretched sinner and if Jesus doesn't save me, I'm done. Old guys had got it, man. The pride of youth was gone. It's it's interesting because to me that tells you that it's it's easier to convict an older person of sin than it is a younger person of sin. Because you've lived a life, you can look in the mirror and you can go, man, I can't believe by the grace of God I'm even here. I mean, a a man or or a woman who can look back over their life and see themselves clearly goes, wow, man, I thought I knew stuff when I was young. What a fool. And one by one, they dropped the rocks and off they went. Until the only one that was left, there's a crowd there, there's a crowd. So the Pharisees and the scribes are gone until the only one that's left before that crowd is Jesus and the woman. Just the two of them. It's interesting, she doesn't like get up and take off, like running for her life. Like you just imagine this woman, the distraught, the f- the fear, the humility, the uh like what an awful scenario. I can I can't imagine how she felt. But I think this at that moment in front of Jesus, she felt very safe. Because <laughs> you know, even when you are Dealing with the guilt of sin, there is something safe about finding yourself at the foot of Jesus. Like you've blown it, you've messed up, you've you, you're off track, you shipwrecked, and you come to the feet of Jesus, and there is something safe there. Something really safe when the guilt of sin is present, because because when Jesus is present because he's full of grace and truth. And the sinner never feels safe in their sin, but they do feel safe in the presence of Jesus. Guilt and shame are met with his compassion. Guilt and shame are met with forgiveness, with grace. That calls you as a sinner, that calls you and says, go and don't do that anymore. Go and sin no more. And that's the heart of Jesus, not to condemn the sinner, but to make them right, to make you right. That's his heart, to make you right, so that you would go and sin, sin no more. And this woman, she's almost lost her life, like it's moments away, like in a, a lot of, like she knows what's in front of her, but she just met Jesus, and she met a man who's different than all the other men she had known. He was full of justice. He was full of compassion. He was loving. He was merciful. He was graceful. He was full of wisdom. And she was released at his command, go and sin no more. And you know, when I think about this woman, I think this. I think that she was constrained by grace from that day forward. That the love of Jesus constrained the actions of her life from there on in. Love of Moses didn't have any power to constrain her. But grace did. After, after having her life spared, how could she sin against the grace of Jesus? How could she sin against what He had done for her? And so this is like amazing. He who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and when you stop and you think about that, well, who was qualified to chuck the stone? Jesus. Jesus was. Because let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, that's Jesus, without sin. But interesting, he was also in a strange legal, a bit of a different legal position in front of the law of Moses at this point in time. Because the law of Moses required this. So you know, it required that those who throw the first stones had to be witnesses of the act. They had to be witnesses of the crime. And so, on the basis of the law, Jesus is qualified because he's without sin. But on the basis of the law, Jesus is not qualified because he had not been a witness to what had happened. So, he fulfills everything perfectly. Hadn't broken the law of Moses because he wasn't a witness. I mean, the trap was brilliant. You talk about this trap like it's brilliant. And then it sprung and there's Jesus. Nice try guys. And that's the wisdom of Jesus. Like we should see the wisdom of Jesus in this. The accusers are gone, the woman is free. She's constrained by the love and grace of Jesus. She's free and Jesus is free. You know only Jesus can find the way out of an unsolvable problem. Only Jesus. So wise he didn't break the law, nor did he insist that the woman be stoned to death. What's your unsolvable problem? Have you found yourself in the midst of an unsolvable problem? You say, Yeah, I got myself in this situation. I can't get out. My sin is great. The consequence is terrible. I feel like I could die. I have no solution. There is no solution. I don't know how to navigate my way out of this. I'm trapped. I got myself caught. I'm caught in a trap. There's no solution. There is no solution except for one bring it to Jesus. He springs traps. Bring it, bring it to Jesus. Only Jesus has the wisdom to lead you through whatever you think is unsolvable. Only Jesus can lead you to a solution. Only Jesus can set you free. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. You know Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, we love this verse. There is no condemnation. For there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Jesus, he can spring you out. And forgiveness, he can forgive you in the midst of it. And and forgiveness is, is more than being let off. I don't want you to just say, oh yeah, Jesus let me off. No, it's not a let off. Jesus can give you a clean start. The forgiveness that's found in Christ Jesus takes care of the past. It looks after the past, but then it says, let's go forward now. Let's look forward. Let's move forward. I said it right. Now let's go forward. And Jesus released her, but I think this about him, that, that he restrained her. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but then he restrained her. From now on, go and sin no more. Imagine hearing that from Jesus. Go and sin no more. If you heard Jesus say that to you, you would not want to trample his love and his grace to you ever. God, may I be constrained by that? That's the difference between law and love right there. Law can only punish. The law says don't. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't cross that. Don't do this. Love takes it further. Love constrains. Love says this. No more. I love you. So no more. Not don't no more. And John tells us the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting because this is where the bracket closes. If you look at your Bible, at the end of verse 11 there, the bracket closes and then we come to verse 12 and we're going to close with verse 12 this morning. And we know this, that verse 12 100% is part of the story. So wherever questions there were, it ended at verse 11. Now we know we're bang on track 100%. There's no guessing anymore now that we were guessing in the first place because we believe in the Word of God. So the bracket closes. And you have to think what's going on in the heart and mind of Jesus? This crowd's in front of him. This whole scene's just happened. The, the woman's left. She has, she has freedom. The men have dropped their stones, they've, they've headed off. And what's going on in the mind of Jesus? It's like, man, this is, these people need light. This is dark stuff that I've just been dealing with. They need to know about the light. And so it says this, verse 12. And Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, when you look at your Bibles, this is where it's a tragedy that the subtitle's in there cuz it like makes this division in our minds for us between 11 and 12. There's no division. Neither do I condemn you go and sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, "I am the light of the world." He went right in to this lesson on the light of the world. Now let me remind you, again, Feast of Booths. Thanksgiving family camp, it had another name. It was also called the festival of light the Festival of Light. And it was called the Festival of Light because guess what they would do? They would set up in the courtyard of the women lampstands. And they would light these lampstands and the lampstands would burn for the entire eight days of the festival, day and night. Because it was, it was a celebration before the Lord. People were staying up late. They were in the temple of God late. They might have been there To the wee hours of the morning. And so these lamps would burn for eight days of the festival. They would light up the whole area. The celebrations would go on. Even when the sun had departed and darkness had come over, these lamps lit the area. And now Jesus is sitting here in the courtyard. And I'm not sure if these lamps were still burning. Maybe they were starting to go out because the festival was over. Maybe they had already been extinguished by the temple workers. Maybe they were continuing to burn. But these lamps were there, and these lamps served a purpose. Besides the practicality of just lighting the temple area, they taught this lesson. And they would use it to teach their children. They would say, son, see that lamp stand? When our ancestors were wandering in the wilderness, the Lord lit our presence with a pillar of fire. And with the pillar of fire, He would lead us and He would guide us and He would protect us and He would give us light and He would give us warmth and we would feel the warmth of His presence. And when that pillar of fire picked up and moved, guess what we did? We packed up camp. And we followed that pillar of fire wherever it went. The crowd that had watched the scene between the Pharisees and the woman caught in the act of adultery and Jesus had watched Jesus do this. He sprung the trap. They had heard and they had seen the very wisdom of God in their presence before them. They had heard and seen the wisdom of God in in the midst of a situation that was unsolvable by the human mind. They had seen the wisdom of God in a situation that was morally dark, depressing. And these lampstands that had lit the festival were burning out, hanging over the the whole picture and Jesus looked up at the lampstands and, and he said, I am the light of the world, follow me. You won't be in darkness. I'll lead you through this dark world. If you follow me, you will never be without light. If you follow me, you will never be without direction. If you follow me, I will never leave you out in the cold. If you follow me, I will warm you with the light of my presence and I will look after you. I'll look after you in the midst of the darkness of this world. Follow me and I will lead you where you should go. You know, think about the woman. How did she end up in her situation? You know how she ended up in her situation? The the darkness of the immorality where she was? Simple. She wasn't following Jesus. Jesus. We've all been in the dark, you know, when you, you're in the dark and then someone flips on the light and you're like, oh, come on, seriously? You know that feeling? Sometimes you have that on Sunday morning. You walk out of this space and you just step in the parking lot. And you're like, oh, it was so dark in that cl- old nightclub. And it's interesting because it's like painful. It's kind of like this painful reaction from your body, from your eyes that it's like you got to squint to adjust to the light because you've been in the dark. And when Jesus shines his light on your life, it's like the same reaction. You're like, ooh, that hurts. Okay, I can see clear now, but that just hurt. When the light went on, that hurt. It shocked me. Because it like hurts to see yourself clearly. (laughs) To look in the mirror in the morning, you know, flip on the light and go, ooh. To see your sin, to see your heart clearly, to see who you are. And the light exposes and shows you yourself. But then the light also does this. The light guides. That's why, you know, communities, towns, put up lamps all over the place. They put a street light on our street. I was so ticked, man, because I liked that our street was just kind of this dark little alley. And towns put up lights because it's saying, here, you need to know where you're going. Here's so you can identify the direction. Here's so that you know how to... To get home here here, so you know the way to end up at the desired place you you want to go. Well, Jesus said this: I'm the light of the world. And it might hurt for a moment to hear that. But if you follow me, I will guide you. I will lead you. At the Feast of Tabernacles, the people remembered the pillar of light that had led the Israelites through the desert for 40 years. And they did this when the pillar of fire moved, they moved. They packed up. And and I want to tell you this. I'm going to close here. That that if you want to follow Jesus, you have to pick up your camp and go wherever he leads. Because Jesus is on the move. Jesus is on the move and he, and if you set down your tent pegs too deep, you get left behind. He's on the move and and Jesus, his heart is this, he never wants to leave you in the condition that he found you. Say, hey man, you're gonna follow me, we can't stay here, we gotta move. So let's move. Let's go to my house. Let's go in my direction. Walk with me, you don't have to stay where you are and if you follow Jesus you are going to have to move. You're going to have to fold up your tent and make your home where he is. And unless you keep up with Jesus, you'll find yourself back in moral darkness. But if you follow him, he will set you free from darkness. He he will liberate you. It's interesting to think about that. Like, keep close to Jesus and he'll free you. It's like this paradox. You can't say... Well, I want to be free and then do your own thing. If you want to be free, you have to stay close to Jesus. Don't get to go your own way. That won't work. You have to stay close to him. And so Jesus says this, follow me. Stay close to me. Submit to me. Walk in my footsteps. Abide in me. Make your home in me. If you walk with me, you will never walk in darkness. If you walk with me, you'll be free and you'll know true freedom and true freedom is found in walking in my life. That's why Jesus said this, if you're really my disciple, you'll hold to my teaching and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Incredible picture in this passage of scripture of the darkness of sin and the light of Jesus Christ. And the challenge is this, you follow Jesus and you'll never be in darkness. You won't be in darkness. If you're in darkness, it just identifies where you are in relationship to Jesus. Pack up and come to him. You'll find grace. You'll find mercy. You'll find truth. You'll find forgiveness. He'll say, We can take care of that. Now let's go. Come with me. My direction. You guys stand with me? Let's pray.